0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Envisioneering Exchange, the podcast where industry leaders discuss the most important topics in building and urban efficiency. I'm your host, John Chef Dan Foss' Director of Public and Industry Affairs, and you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Today's topic is energy as a service, and I am really excited to talk with our guest, Sasha Wittekin. Sasha is a managing consultant and senior research analyst with GuideHouse Insights, uh, where she leads the firm's building efficiency and decarbonization service. Sasha, thanks so much for joining us. Please tell us a bit about yourself and your work at GuideHouse.
1: Thanks so much for having me on, John. It's a pleasure to be here. I lead our market research on decarbonization in the built environment. And as part of that, we cover underlying energy efficiency and electric technologies such as HVAC, as well as different contracting models for energy efficiency and energy infrastructure upgrades. We have been covering the ESCO market and performance contracting for over a decade now and started covering the energy as a service space about five years ago. And overall, as a firm, we publish regular reports on energy as a service, including market sizing, forecasting, based on really extensive primary and secondary research with solution providers and customers. So excited to be talking about this exciting space today.
0: Yeah, it really is exciting because there's a lot going on and people are using this model in lots of different ways. But let's back up a little bit. Explain what you mean by energy as a service and how is this different from what we traditionally think of as energy and commercial buildings?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad that we started there because depending on who you ask, their definition of energy as a service varies quite a bit. But overall, we've been seeing quite a bit of convergence around a common definition of energy as a service that is now being shared among the majority of different vendors and customers that are out there. Overall, we think of energy as a service essentially as a contracting model for energy efficiency, energy supply or energy infrastructure upgrades that emerged about 10 years ago and has really picked up steam in the past three or five years. So the model enables customers to realize energy savings and upgrade their infrastructure without any capital outlay. Instead, they're paying out of their operating budget, which typically receives off of the balance sheet treatment. And the beauty of this model and why it's getting so much attention is that the customers can avoid debt, or CapEx spending while transferring performance risk to the vendor. So the vendor guarantees outcomes over the duration of the contract, such as energy efficiency and savings, but also increasingly energy supply and resilience. And uh, because the contract is structured as a services contract, it is creating a lot of opportunities for a wider group of customers and building types to participate in energy efficiency and realize these improvements
0: talk a bit about what types of buildings are best suited for this. Who are the best customers for this? Who's really utilizing this right now?
1: Overall, we're seeing uptake of this model across all sorts of different verticals. I think primarily it emerged among commercial and industrial customer types, but now we're seeing increasingly much verticals participating as well, specifically education and healthcare. And, uh, you know, customers of all different sizes are participating as well from large corporations with a portfolio of buildings. Such as, for example, healthcare campuses or huge chain businesses, to even smaller businesses such as retail or restaurants or nursing homes.
0: And who are the major players in this from the energy services contractors?
1: There are generally, I would say, three different types of players in this market. There's a lot of energy as a service, you know, smaller companies or startups that essentially entered this market with a digital platform enabling their customers to usually implement lighting upgrades, HVAC upgrades that are now moving into more sustainability-oriented, broader solutions, including solar and energy storage. Then there's a lot of ESCOs that have traditionally been doing performance contracting that are now adding energy-as-a-service to their solution stack, essentially expanding into new customer types through this new offering. And then utilities as well. A lot of utilities have bundled energy-as-a-service offering on top of their just core energy supply business to serve their customers in new ways.
0: You hit on a lot there, and I want to parse it a little bit. When we talk about these energy performance contractings, that's really a model where a company will go in, provide the capital to upgrade a building, whether it's lighting or HVAC or, or whatever, and then share the energy savings with their customer. But there are also other models that include a fixed cost, right? Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the differences there and who's a better fit for which one?
1: Sure. Well, performance contracting has been incredibly successful in much customer verticals because there's been a lot of regulatory support. These clients are very credit worthy. You know, they have long term planning horizons. So, performance contracting has been a very successful model. It hasn't been as successful in the commercial sector because a lot of commercial sector customers typically tend to think of performance contracting as too long too complicated maybe a bit too inflexible for their needs and this is why energy as a service is really gaining traction in that market the models are really quite similar in the most fundamental sense it's the savings that are being shared between the vendor and the customer the key difference in energy as a service is that it's paid out of their operating budget and therefore has the potential to not impact their balance sheet which is critical for a lot of these verticals
0: yeah and There are some models here where the actual provider of the energy as a service will own some of the infrastructure. Is that right?
1: Yes, absolutely. Actually, we see that in the majority of cases. This is kind of considered to be a prerequisite for a lot of energy as a service contracts, because in order for the vendor to guarantee these outcomes that they specify with a the customer, they need to have control of these energy assets. This is also really important for that off the balance sheet treatment, essentially making sure that in the contract, it's the vendor that maintains control for the customer to be able to not put these assets on their balance sheet
0: Yeah. And I think that makes sense. And you also mentioned utilities. What is their role here? They're getting into this space too, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. Utilities have been some of the most successful players so far in capturing this market opportunity. Their energy supply business pretty naturally lends itself towards providing other energy services. So a lot of companies they have been, you know, bolting on these energy as a service capabilities on top of the energy supply services that they offer, And uh, utilities have also partnered to participate in energy as a service. A good example of that is Seattle City Lights Program. I think the model is called Metered Energy Efficiency transaction structure. I hope I didn't um, butcher that.
0: No, I think you've got it right. I was actually involved in this a couple of years ago when they were first developing it. I spent some time in Seattle and with uh, Seattle City Light trying to get to know it. And uh, it's really interesting. And I hope that there's uptake of this because I think it could solve a lot of issues, particularly in tenant-occupied commercial spaces.
1: Absolutely. I think the potential there is huge, and I'm hoping that other utilities are taking note because the model really is a win-win-win for the utility, the building owner, and the vendor. The unique thing about this model is that the agreement is made between the utility, the owner, and the equipment and services provider, and the utility benefits from you know reliable and at scale low resources the building owners they save the money and renters costs do not rise essentially what happens is the utility passes the savings onto the building owner rather than the renter so the renter continues to pay their regular bill but then the utility is serving as the intermediary essentially moderating these money flows from the savings to incentivize the owners to participate in the program. And by doing so, it helps address that key barrier you know, in energy efficiency that everybody talks about, the split incentive between the owner and the tenant.
0: Yeah. And we've definitely talked about the split incentive on this show before and, and what a barrier it is. And I think this is a really innovative model. So basically the tenant, their energy bill stays the same as it was before the upgrade, but they're getting an upgraded building for no cost. And the building owner pays for the upgrades, but then he gets a long-term contract that basically gives him revenue based on that upgrade. And the utilities is paying for a grid resource or energy efficiency in the form of a long-term PPA. So that's kind of the win-win-win you're talking about.
1: Yes, and for the owner as well, you know, they can market their building as more efficient and more sustainable, thus being able to attract more tenants as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think as this model evolves, you could see You know, right now the building owners are paying for the upgrades, but I think you could see investors come in and pay for these upgrades with a long-term PPA that's providing revenue. Uh, I just think there are a lot of possibilities here.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we're seeing a lot of interest in investing in green technologies, green projects. So I agree. I think there's a lot of potential there.
0: Yeah, and Seattle City Light is a public utility around one city, but I'm hoping that an investor-owned utility will recognize this model and pick it up at some point because I think then it will really get some legs.
1: Definitely. We're seeing a lot of interest in energy as a service from utilities. I think a lot of them are watching this from a bit of a distance right now, but as the market evolves, as it becomes a little bit more mature, I think we'll see a lot more participation from a wider group of stakeholders.
0: Yeah. And the utility business model is shifting so much. I mean, we could have a whole show just about this, but I think they're looking for new ways and new sources of revenue as they kind of go forward. And this could definitely be one. So you say, they've latched onto energy as a service in general, but I think new models there, unlike what Seattle City Light is doing, will definitely uh, attract them. In the last couple of years, and we definitely talked in the show about building emissions laws in New York City and Washington, DC, is energy as a service responding to these policies as well?
1: Absolutely. I think it's a little bit too early to tell, you know, what specific impact these regulations will have on energy services markets. But, for example, in New York City, the first phase of the Climate Mobilization Act, I believe, requires buildings above 20 or 25,000 square feet to cut their greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. So that is already in nine years, right? And uh, a lot of these building owners will definitely be looking for financing options to facilitate the upgrades. And I would say it's very likely that they'll turn to energy as a service due to how comprehensive and flexible this kind of solution can be in meeting sustainability and uh, greenhouse gas reduction objectives. Right now, we're seeing a lot of different vendors expanding their presence in the New York City market and trying to understand, you know, how they need to evolve their solution services and and technology stack to, to serve this specific opportunity.
0: Yeah. Before the pandemic, I think that this is a big question would have been a big question and still is a big question is how are building owners going to respond to some of these emissions laws? But now I think we're talking about how are they going to respond to the pandemic and Can energy as a service be used to address some of these indoor air quality and pandemic related issues?
1: Yes, I feel like that's all we talked about at work probably for like two or three months there, you know, air quality and healthy buildings. And in general, in the buildings market, a lot of vendors have really repositioned to add these kind of healthy building type solutions specifically around air quality, but also disinfection, occupancy management, specifically when we talk about kind of smart building solutions and different digital Tools, In terms of energy as a service specifically, I actually haven't seen a lot of evidence that these technology solutions are a driver for energy as a service. The reason probably is that a lot of companies, they needed to purchase these kinds of technologies quick, so they probably just did that out of their capital budget. While, you know, with energy as a service, it definitely takes some time for the contracts to be negotiated. But what we're seeing is that while air quality might not be a driver for energy as a service, it's certainly a component of any kind of discussion right now around any project. A lot of customers are asking, you know, in addition to energy efficiency improvements, in addition to sustainability outcomes, resilience outcomes, how can you help us make our buildings healthier? And that takes a lot of different routes, air quality being one of them. But I think a lot of people are also looking at smart building tech And occupancy management, helping people navigate their buildings, helping them stay distanced, value-added apps around being able to reserve your space, disinfection, cleaning protocols, all of these other additional services that are now becoming more central to any kind of solution that goes into any building.
0: Yeah, and I think you just hit on a key point there and kind of a driver for energy as a service is that as these buildings get more complex, and especially as we look at campuses, hospitals, where their core business is not really their building, I think that these building owners will look to outsource that expertise to somebody else who really is an expert in these areas, especially as we combine efficiency with sustainability, with indoor air quality and connected buildings and all that stuff. I think the complexity is going to drive building owners looking for specialists here, and that could really drive energy as a service.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think complexity is probably the number one driver for this market. You're absolutely spot on. There's so many different technologies available there now in terms of building envelope, HVAC, different digital tools, smart building solutions, distributed energy resources, energy storage, and solar have been dropping in price quite significantly. Microgrids, demand response, EV charging, You know, there's so many different options. And um, you layer on top of that, the different sustainability commitments that companies are increasingly making, and the fact that financial stakeholders at this point expect not just ESG ambition, they expect companies to actually start reporting on performance. That's a very complicated landscape to manage. And then on top of that, you have the pandemic and this understanding that buildings need to be healthier, that there need to be certain technologies to manage that aspect of it as well. It becomes very complicated very quickly. And the question is, how do you all of these business needs and all of the different options that exist out there in the market. So it becomes very compelling to go to a vendor and just completely outsource your whole energy operation, especially if they can provide guarantees in return around these critical outcomes that you're looking for.
0: And it's not just guarantees in return, right? If you have a contract with one of these service providers and something changes, say a pandemic and all of a sudden indoor air quality is something, they can come in and, and part of that service contract adapt your building. So it's really the flexibility of the service contract that I think is appealing also.
1: Absolutely. Yes. You know, a lot of uh, vendors are signing these contracts with customers for the next, you know, 30, 50 years. We don't know what technology is going to exist at that time, but the vendor takes on that risk to say that we will adjust our technology strategy for you to meet these outcomes a couple of decades out And uh, there's definitely a lot of opportunity to plug in new technologies, new solutions, new services, depending on the client's needs. And I absolutely agree. This is very appealing at this time of change.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the big benefits to building owners is getting somebody who specializes in this and then getting a contract that's adaptable and flexible to whatever the business climate is and whatever technology is available. So kind of speaking of that, what are some of the most innovative energy as a service projects you've seen?
1: That's a great question. The most innovative projects, they typically wrap in a lot of different technologies. So they really look at the companies building an energy portfolio in a comprehensive way, where they're taking care of efficiency upgrades, but at the same time, they're layering on on-site energy supply, as well as you know demand response or EV charging, kind of really looking to the future in terms of what the future needs of the customer will be. I think this is where the future of the market really lies. It's that move towards really turnkey integrated solution offerings, very much aligned with these sustainability mandates. And I think a lot of companies are realizing that opportunity and they're pivoting in that direction. They're building out all of these kind of comprehensive capabilities.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. And one thing that comes to mind, I can understand in a retrofit situation, this making a lot of sense. Are you seeing this in new construction right off the bat too?
1: Definitely. I think most of the new construction work that we see is when it's an add on to an existing building. So there's an opportunity to perhaps do a retrofit and the old facility while you're building up a new facility as well. But I think the value proposition is there regardless of retrofit or new construction.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting uh, way to go with new construction too and could give you, you know, make a new building even more flexible and adaptable into the future. As we wrap up here, we like to kind of take a forward looking approach and ask a forward looking question uh, to end. So where do you kind of see energy as a service going in the next 10 years? Is it going to be about new technology? Is the business model going to evolve? What are you seeing and what do you think?
1: I think we're going to see a really rapid growth in this market. It's still relatively small in comparison to some other contracting mechanisms that are out there. And there's just a lot of potential moving forward. I think it is going to be about new technologies, absolutely. Like I mentioned before, there's a definite move towards very comprehensive solutions. So there's a bit of a race right now in terms of who can develop the most comprehensive offering. And we'll see all the new tech being integrated and becoming more commonplace in a lot of projects. And I think key to that are probably solar and energy storage, but also EV charging, especially with the recent stimulus around EV charging stations. But uh, another trend that I think we'll be seeing is a consolidation of definitions of energy as a service and also customers becoming more familiar with the model. Right now, there's still a lot of confusion in the market around what energy as a service means and what it is and what it isn't and how it's different from other contracting tools. But I think in the next few years, we'll see more comfort with the model. We'll see you know, customers starting to put out our fees for energy as a service, vendors finding more economies of scale in terms of how they do energy as a service, which will definitely enable that market growth moving forward.
0: Do you think that this is still a place where startups can exist or do you expect market consolidation with some of the larger players who are maybe incumbents in the uh, performance contracting space?
1: That's a great question. I think the market is still pretty open. There's still a lot of moves to be made. Every couple of years, we publish an energy as a service leaderboard and the latest one actually just came out right now. And the rankings changed quite a bit in just two years and I expect that to continue. There's still a lot of opportunity and I think there's a lot of room for new entrants and for existing market players to grow and solidify their market position as well.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. But I do think that this is pretty capital intensive to get started. So I've seen some of these startups like SparkBund for instance, for seems like a startup, but they are backed by some very large utility players. So I think you could see some of that activity.
1: Yeah, definitely. There's a huge partnership ecosystem in this space. A lot of, um, like you said, smaller companies that might not have a lot of kind of internal technology capabilities, they partner with utilities or ESCOs around or project delivery. There's a proliferation of white labeling platforms right now where different energy as a service vendors essentially sell their platform to a bigger company to be able to go to market. So there are definitely a lot of partnerships and it is a key strategy for the market moving forward because as we move towards these more comprehensive solutions. Partnerships are the quickest way to achieve that comprehensive suite of capabilities that is required to serve these large commercial clients.
0: Yeah, and I think overall, this is just a space to keep an eye on your right. I think it's going to experience a lot of growth and be able to introduce some really innovative technologies and some innovative business models too. So I think it's something to keep an eye on. Well, Sasha, thank you so much for joining us. This was a great conversation. I learned a lot and I hope uh, you had a great time doing it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This was a lot of fun and thanks so much for having me on.
0: My pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode of the Envisioneering Exchange. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Sasha Wedekin of GuideHouse Insights for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to the Envisioneering Exchange on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to rate, review, and share with your network. Again, my name is John Chef. I'm Dan Foss's Director of Public and Industry Affairs. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.
2: This podcast is for information purposes only. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Envisionering Exchange podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and not necessarily represent those of Danfoss LLC and its employees. Danfoss LLC is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening on this site. This podcast series does not constitute professional advice or services. This podcast, including Danfoss LLC and the producers, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own and Danfoss LLC in this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about the guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast. The developers of the Envisioneering Exchange podcast site assume no liability for any activities in connection with this podcast or for use of this podcast in connection with any other website computer or playing device.